think the people who are actually successful, it's just choosing something that you don't give up on. Never did I dream, oh my gosh, I'm going to own mobile home parks. Like it's not a sexy asset class that you get super excited about. It's not like luxury Airbnbs on the ocean or something. But if you can stick with it and figure out how to get excited about it, you will eventually be successful at it if you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Heather Blankenship, who's going to be talking about her multi-million dollar RV park business. But before that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Uh, yeah, this past weekend kind of kicked off a, a big stretch for me. I got a lot of different places I'm hitting, so we drove up to Dallas actually on Wednesday night to make an easier journey for us over to Mississippi. So came back home to Mississippi, brought one of my buddies, uh, George, out for the first time. I met him in the Air Force. He's from Minnesota, never been to Mississippi really. So get to bring him back to my hometown and show him around was cool. The very first stop, we went up, got some fried catfish uh, as a must, hit up some local crazy, you know, little random bars in the woods and went down to Starkville, hit up a Mississippi State game, got the W there. So that was good. Did a day out on the lake hit all the things. So that's been a really good time. And that just leads into the trip where we're going to FinCon. And then from FinCon, you know, we're doing Universal Studios. So I think this is definitely a great example of, you know, for those who listen a lot, probably know that I have a normal W-2 job, but I'm still going to do all this stuff between super flexible vacation and getting to work from anywhere. It is still possible to have a nice, stable W-2 job that you get to do what you want to do uh, and still get to travel. So just a reminder. For sure. And I mean, you're going to be going away all of January, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I will be working some. We're going to get a co-working space. Uh, my vote is that we do three-day weeks. Like we work like Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday. I, I'm a big fan of that instead of trying to take off all at once. But yeah, we're going to get a co-working space. We're going to be in Costa Rica for an entire month. Cool. Well, I am definitely looking forward to this week because I know this is going out on Wednesday. We're recording this intro on Tuesday. We're going to be in Florida for that entire week. First few days, FinCon. It's like literally our hotel is on top of Disney. I think we have a shuttle to Disney Springs and it's like, you know, 15 minutes away. Then we're going to be hitting Universal the next couple of days. And it's just, it's always good to meet new people, hang out with old friends, get new business ideas. I'm just like always jazzed up with excitement. And I just love talking shop and seeing people at FinCon. So one of my favorite times of the year. And it's going to be nice and warm, maybe too warm down in Florida. Probably (laughs) not for Austinites like you, but maybe for Massachusetts folks like myself. It's getting a little chilly here. So it's going to be nice to kind of escape down to the heat. And hopefully we can snag some some new guests while we're down there. Snag some guests, snag some shirts, snag some water bottles. (laughs) We'll be snagging left and right. But that's enough of our personal updates, Justin. Let's take a minute to talk about our amazing guest today and what listeners can expect on this episode. So for those who have not ever heard of Heather and her story before, it's just incredible. She ends up like buying this super expensive RV park for a 0% down loan. Then she kind of just like figures it out on the job. She's like sleeping in the RV park office. She's just like scrambling, trying to make this thing work. She actually doesn't make her all of her money back for three years And we talk about that a bit, just the mindset that goes into failing, quote unquote failing, for that long. 
And then finally kind of getting on top of it. And now she has a multi-million dollar business. She has an RV park with like 17 different streams of income. It's absolutely insane what Heather has built and what she's currently building. She's continuing to work on new projects. She's a single mom of three kids. It's just so inspiring to hear this story and to just see how efficient and effective she can be with the little time she has actually making all this stuff happen. To me, the biggest thing that stuck out to me was the the creativity around the multiple streams of income. From renting out golf carts to tiny homes to cookies and milk to the little country store that she said is kind of like a cracker barrel. I mean, just the list went on and on and on. And to me, what that shows is there's so many businesses out there that are fine. They're good businesses, but they could be taken to the next level. I mean, we see that with whether it be apartment complexes sometimes when someone takes it over as a, a real estate like property manager or normal stores that you'll see, whether it's, you know, a laundry machine or somebody owns vending machines and just, you know, she even mentioned that the RV park had a little laundromat area and they swapped out to a more like digitally advanced system to where they know exactly when it is that things are getting busy and how much they're bringing in and which machines are being used the most. That extra bit of data is just kind of that next modernization around that business. You know, you take a business that's been around forever, washing clothes, and you just add that next layer on top of it. So there's so many businesses out there that could just use a little facelift, could use a little bit of like young inspiration, new modern ways of doing things. So that was probably the coolest part to me. And if you want to find out more information about Heather, follow along with her story a little more, see some of the deals that she's doing with RV parks, or you know someone who would be interested in an investment like this, or or maybe just want an inspirational story about a single mom who is making a killing off of a kind of a diamond in the rough. You can find all that information over at thefyshow.com slash Heather. That's thefyshow.com slash H-E-A-T-H-E-R. Take it away, Heather. Oftentimes people start with the, I have $30 million in real estate. And it's so unrelatable that people just kind of give up and stop listening. And there were so many lessons along the way. I spent the first six months of my investment career sleeping in the office floor because I didn't want to lose the money from some of my rentals. And I was already pregnant with my first child at the time. So not everyone starts out with having all their ducks in a row and figuring everything out before they dive into real estate. I feel like that's the number one thing on like social media or my students. They're like, but I don't know this yet, or I haven't figured out that yet, or I want to get to this place in life first. You will never, ever get it done if you keep saying, I've got to do this first. I got to do that first. You've literally just got to jump in and get started. So what was it like when you were first getting started? Like what got you into this avenue at all, like real estate in general? So I was driving across the country in a camper from Florida to California, and I was looking around thinking, they're literally just renting these parking spots and they're all full. There's like hundreds of people here paying $50 a night and they're like just renting parking spots. So I started Google searching like RV parks for sale and campgrounds for sale. I knew nothing about real estate. I didn't even know that it was real estate. I thought of it more like a business. And by the time I got to California, I had found an RV park that was in bankruptcy. The bank owned it. And it was $3.2 million. And it was near a tourist town where I lived in Tennessee. And so I kept thinking, how could it go wrong? It's right next to Dollywood, which is our version of Disney World. Only we have Dolly Parton (laughs) instead of Mickey Mouse. And it's literally a mile from there. So I'm like, how the heck could this go wrong? So I call the bank and I'm like, I want to buy this. I was 26 years old. and They're like, how much money do you have? I'm like, oh, I don't have any. (laughs) And so (laughs) it was after the market had collapsed almost 11 years ago. And they had all these different properties on their books, banks did, that they wanted to get rid of. And some money was better than no money. So they gave loans that you couldn't get today. 
So they gave me a non-recourse loan with no money down for $3.2 million, which sounds like, oh my gosh, Heather, you were so lucky. Like, that's the only reason you're successful. Well, behind that means that I have an $18,500 payment to pay and I have six months to figure out how to do that. As well as my first payment for electricity because RV parks, they're just sucking out your electricity, was $20,000. So even though I got this unique opportunity, which I think all of us run into unique opportunities, it's whether or not you accept that opportunity and what you do with it. I had to figure out how to make money really quick. So were you cash flow positive in that very first month or how did that transition go? You buy the property, you've never run an RV park before. Was it just like absolute chaos, like 24 hour days for an entire month? Yes, <laughs> because there were a hundred people there living there with refrigerators and mailboxes outside. They were paying $300 a month to live there. And that included all of their utilities, their power, their water, their sewer, their Wi-Fi. So they were costing way more than what was being taken in. So obviously that six months where they gave me a loan where I didn't have to pay the first payment for six months, I wouldn't have made it without that because I had to figure out how to get those people out or increase what they were paying, which they weren't going to start paying that much more and then figure out how to get customers in that were paying the going right. And was that kind of like common that you were seeing when you're looking at these other parks that people were just allowing people to live there for a month? And how did you change the business? Like, how did you change the model of what you were selling? There's about five different types of RV parks. There's long-term parks, there's short-term parks, there's man camps, there's seasonal parks. There's all these different versions of RV parks. Some people even have them that they treat like a lake house where it's like a second home that they go to on the weekends, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half from their house in some desirable area. And so the people who had owned it before me were treating it more like a mobile home park, like affordable housing, like a long-term property, which I also own mobile home parks. And that's also a great investment, but your numbers aren't going to work out drop dead in the middle of a tourist town with expensive land doing affordable housing. And so there were all these parks around me. KOA is one of the largest franchises for RV parks. They have six or 700 locations all over the country. And their flagship location was across the street from me. And they were constantly busy. So I was like, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. So I went and stayed at the KOA as a guest for a couple of days and like took every note I could. I'm like, what are they doing? How are they making this work? What are they doing for laundry? How are they checking guests in and out? And how do I mimic what they are doing? Because if they can do it, I can do it. And their prices at the time were like 45 bucks a night or something like that. And so I made mine $33 a night, spent a ton of money on Google pay for clicks and a website. And that's how I got started. So rewinding back to the purchase, I just want to get people in our audience to try to think about stepping into your shoes. Did you have a job at that point? Did you just like quit that job cold turkey? Or what was the situation with income there? So I had been a finance manager for Enterprise, the car rental company. And I got married and my ex-husband had a job that required him to travel around the country. And when we got married, he traveled almost 200 days a year. And we decided that I would travel with him or we would never see each other. And so I tried sewing. I tried knitting. I ran marathons. I was so freaking bored. I was never meant to be this stay-at-home housewife person. It just isn't my personality. And, and for the women that are, that's great. I really want everybody to do whatever makes them happy, but that just wasn't for me. Did you have a job at the time? Like you're 26, you just get a $3.2 million loan. Were you doing something else? Like, you know, the day before you got that loan and decided to put an offer in on that park? I was riding around in a camper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
nothing anywhere near related to real estate or running a business and all of those things. So how long did it take you to make that transition to where you're kind of bleeding money, you're letting everybody suck the power out, like you said, $20,000 electricity bills to like go into a more sustainable method where you could be cash flow positive? I think I was breaking even by the end of the first year. And I didn't do much better than breaking even until about three years in. I started implementing all these different streams of income, meaning I added tiny homes, I added glamping tents, I started having rental campers. The store at the park brings in a quarter million dollars a year. So there's a camp store and it reminds you of Cracker Barrel and has all these different things that people can purchase related to camping or just kind of gift shoppy type items. And I have golf cart rentals. There's about, like I said, 10 different streams of revenue. So starting to treat it like this active business really took it to that next level. And because RV parks, glamping resorts, mobile home parks, all those kinds of things are valued on a cap rate instead of like a single family home based on, you know, like a price per square foot kind of thing. All those different streams of revenue just increase the price more and more and more, meaning the value of the property. So that property now takes in about $2.5 million a year with a 50% expense ratio and is worth almost $15 million. So I'm able to pull the equity from that property and then go out and buy other properties. That's been the end result of finally turning that into a business and understanding how to leverage debt and all that little more advanced stuff that we talk about with finance. But it was adding all those extra streams of revenue and figuring out how to make more money with the property. Definitely want to dig into those streams of revenue because I remember you talking at the Future Flipper Mastermind. I was just like, oh my God, there's so many different ways to make money with an RV park. I do want to just really highlight because you said it just kind of in passing, but it was the first thing you said it took you a year to become cash flow positive and three years to break even and make all that money back. I think when a lot of people think about getting into anything, they're like, you know, I'm going to be a rock star within month one or month three, and they might give up. So before we kind of dig into the income streams and all the nitty gritty tactical stuff, from a mindset perspective, were you ever thinking about giving up? And if yes, what kept you going? You're exactly right. And especially where social media has gotten more and more and more popular and everybody's surrounded by these gurus, most of which haven't ever done anything in their entire life, but they make it sound like you're going to be a billionaire by tomorrow if you buy their program or do what they're telling you they're doing or OMG, look, I just bought this Ferrari. Anybody who's actually doing that has been working at it a very long time. And I think the people who are actually successful, it's just choosing something that you don't give up on. Never did I dream, oh my gosh, I'm going to own mobile home parks. Like It's not a sexy asset class that you get super excited about. It's not like luxury Airbnbs on the ocean or something. But if you can stick with it and figure out how to get excited about it, you will eventually be successful at it if you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And when you talk about the mindset, if you're going in with that mindset of I'm going to be rich tomorrow, you're not going to make it. So you've got to know that it's going to be hard work and it's going to take a long time. I run a women's group for successful ladies and they're, we're mailing out packages literally today and they're all getting a copy of the book, The Gap and the Gain. Have y'all read that? I've listened to it on Audible. It's so freaking good. And it talks about staying in this mindset of being in the gain versus in the gap, meaning pretty much constantly thinking of all the positive things that are working for you. I've even got my kids doing this at night. It has you write down three positive things that happen to you for the day and three positive things that you're going to do tomorrow. Kind of like three wins, regardless of the size of them. And constantly staying in that positive mindset, I think helps you continue to move forward. 
And I can remember back when I was doing that, I kept thinking, okay, if I just grow by 10%, because like you said, you want to give up. It's hard. It's really hard, especially when you're dragging a business out of a bankruptcy and trying to make it successful. You're not buying something turnkey. So I remember thinking, if I can just grow by 10%, I'm making progress and it's doing well. And I never had a year that didn't grow by at least 20%. So like keep hitting that 10% goal made me feel like, okay, it's doing good. We're going to make it. It's doing great. And I can remember at year five was when it finally became something that was fully supporting my family. And we didn't need any kind of outside income coming from anywhere else. And the feeling of being able to pay all of your own bills at a level that is well beyond what you had is worth more than anybody can ever imagine having that financial freedom and knowing that you're going to make it and like, you know, kind of sighing in relief and being able to breathe. Yeah. Financial freedom is definitely always the goal. And when you're looking at this and, you know, you start talking about those different income streams, which I think is like super interesting. You even mentioned like golf cart rentals. And you also mentioned earlier, like, hey, I went and stayed at the KOA and that's how I got a lot of ideas. And I started seeing what they were doing, which I think is like kind of like an undervalued tactic is there's other people who are already doing whatever you want to do successfully. Just you can kind of go copycat it. Is that what you did with these income streams too? Like, how did you do the market research to think about oh, I could rent golf cart rentals. Oh, I should do glamping. Oh, I should do like the little store. Like, How did you figure out pricing models and what you should offer and things like that? So my brain never stops with the kind of entrepreneurial stuff. So it wasn't just the RV parks I would stay at. If I were staying at a hotel or staying at some kind of resort or going to an Airbnb, I'm thinking, what are they doing here that's freaking fabulous that I can implement in my business? And how could this work with what I'm doing? Because even the camp store, it's most RV parks have some form of camp store, but they usually look like a gas station, more like utilitarian. You're kind of in and out. Think about going in a gas station. It's quick in, use the restroom, pay, get out. And if you go in somewhere like Cracker Barrel, which is totally unrelated to RV parks, right? You go in Cracker Barrel and even though you're there to eat, you're like, holy crap, I need to buy everything in here. And if you have a kid with you, they're like in the toy section. They need every toy that's there. You know, grandma wants the candy that they've got because it's, you know, memorabilia type stuff. So bringing in those ideas from other businesses and not just kind of narrow, being narrow-minded to think about this business is like mine, so I can do what they can do. Thinking about that from a grand scale on any form of hospitality or any form of customer service, how can I implement what they're doing? No different than going to like Starbucks or Chick-fil-A. Their freaking customer service is amazing. So thinking like, how can I bring the skills that Starbucks and Chick-fil-A have into my customer service, even though it's a totally different industry? So don't mean to quiz you, but can you rattle off all of the different income streams from your main RV park? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Okay. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. 
shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. So obviously we've got the RV sites because that's kind of your set base of business. That's what you're there for. So people renting the site, which typically means they're getting full hookups. You're providing them with a concrete, dirt, whatever surface place to park. And it includes their hookups, power, water, sewer, Wi-Fi. Those are pretty standard. Then you've got RV rentals. So you've got your own RV that I, as the owner, own. And I've placed it on a site and people who are looking for this unique experience, but they're not ready to purchase their own RV, they come and rent the site with my RV. So they're paying like $250 a night because they're staying in one of my campers. That's been a huge stream of revenue. They cost me about $30,000 a piece, but they bring in about $30,000 a year. So those are awesome. I rent them through direct booking with my site as well as through sites like Airbnb and stuff. They do well on those. There's also special sites for them like Outdoorsy and RV Share, which are very similar to Airbnb only for RVs specifically. I've got the glamping tents, which are awesome and super unique. Airbnb is pushing that stuff hard right now. The tiny homes, the tiny homes do awesome. They bring in like half a million dollars a year at that property. Am I at four? (laughs) You're at four. That property specifically has about 500 people at any given time there. And during COVID, we closed down the kind of coin-operated laundry room because it was so small that not everybody would fit in there. And we couldn't use social distancing because the space was so small. So you couldn't put people in there unless you like scheduled times and locked doors. It'd be really complicated. So we closed it and we got a mass flood of negative reviews from people who are like, their laundry room's not open. You're like, we have an average day of three days. Why do you need a laundry room? (laughs) So the laundry room brings in thousands of dollars a week. It's almost like having your own separate business with laundry. I actually upgraded those laundry systems this year with a QR code type system, which is so cool because instead of collecting quarters, we get you know an email every week with how much money's come in and what time the laundry room's busy, which helps us schedule cleaning and all this stuff. The more sophisticated technology on that's been really cool. The golf cart rentals, I implemented that a couple years ago. That property is only 21.6 acres. So as much as from people who buy single family homes, that seems like a lot, but for a resort style property, it's not a ton. The loop around is only about a half a mile and people still rent golf carts and they drive them around and around the circle. It's like their entertainment or something. And those rent for 50 to 60 bucks a night and stay totally rented out. We've got a pizza kitchen. Most RV parks have some form of food service. That property being in the middle of a tourist town is a smaller scale food service. You know, we've got pizza, wings, ice cream type stuff that people get after they come back to their sites. The camp store, as we talked about, which is one of my favorite and I'm always talking about. Another stream of revenue is milk and cookies. So that specific property is a franchise. And so we have a mascot that's a bear. And all the kids love the bear. The parents pay 25 bucks a kid for the bear to bring them milk and cookies at the end of the night. And we schedule it very tight. It's a 10-minute stop at each campsite because otherwise you'd eat up all your money in labor because the mascot's required to have a handler that runs around with them. So you got two people and you're considering your labor and your man hours. So they got 10-minute increments that they stop at each site. That milk and cookies brings in a ton of money. Water rentals, running things like kayaks, tubes, pontoon boats, any fishing equipment, any type of water-related rentals is a whole other stream of revenue inside a property because most RV parks are on, like whether it's a lake or a river or whatever stream of water that you have at your property. And I could keep going on. Activities, like all the tie-dye stuff, we bring in a ton of money from tie-dye. Like every kid wants to tie-dye. Pet fees, like it just goes on and on and on, all these different income streams that you have with it. And if somebody's interested, like, I mean, this sounds super interesting. If they're starting to think, oh man, I should do this. Like every time, you know, you listen to a podcast, you start getting amped up, you want to get into it. 
what do people like should look for as far as canvassing and thinking about here's a location that makes a lot of sense where there is potential for a lot of these income streams? You've got a couple things you got to decide. Are you going to buy or are you going to develop? And I think people underestimate how long development takes because they'll go look at a property and they're like, oh, this property is $3 million. Well, I could buy the land over here for 200000 Why the heck would I buy this existing business for $3 bucks? There's so many things that you need to think through. Your lost revenue for the amount of time it's going to take you to build that. Often when you think something like that through alone will change your mind because permitting and zoning and drawing out your architectural civil engineer drawings and all this stuff, that stuff can take 12 to 24 months. You can lose two years just on getting approvals after you purchase the land and go through all of your due diligence for figuring out your utilities if you can get utilities to the property. You know, so there's all these things at the beginning that I encourage people to try really hard to buy an existing one that you can expand meaning there's land left over for expansion or there's something for sale around it that you could purchase to expand versus developing from scratch. Developing from scratch, I always think of as last resort because you lose those couple of years potential income. So you should be considering that when you're looking at it. Doesn't mean that developing isn't great because it's a really good option sometimes when there aren't enough properties in an area. But the two things you're looking at is, like you said, if it's a great area and the type of demand that they have, and then you're also looking at what type of utilities they have. The golden nugget is always going to be city water and city sewer. Like that's what every investor wants. But oftentimes these properties are in remote locations and you might not have access to those city utilities. So in a right situation, you would take a well and a septic system as long as you properly inspected them and made sure everything's great. But you can run into these properties, whether it's an RV park or a mobile home park, that have really complex sewer systems like lift stations and wastewater treatment plants and lagoons and all of these things that if something goes wrong, could cost you millions of dollars to fix. It could cost you more than your property's worth. So some of those sophisticated wastewater treatment type plants, you do not want to mess with that on your first deal. That could go very wrong. <laughs> So it sounds like there is some scale at play here. Like it sounds like there's probably a minimum viable size when it comes to an RV park. Do you have any kind of hard and fast rule? Is it like if they have 10 RV spots, that's like the right size or, you know, I'm obviously just spitballing here. I'm no no expert by any means, but is there usually like a minimum viable size that you're looking for, Heather? It depends on what the goal is. So I also own boutique motels and glamping properties. So sometimes some of those smaller parks, we made an offer on one this week that is, it only has 20 RV sites, which is normally less than I would purchase, but it also has a 20 room motel there. So because I also do boutique motels and this one is near a beach, I would likely convert those RV sites to tiny homes or glamping tents or some form of unique experience because they're already properly zoned and permitted to be able to do that. And that would be more like a glamping resort for me mixed with that boutique motel. So I would still be interested in it. But to run it as an RV park only, if you aren't wanting to be the operator and just creating a job for yourself, which some people do. Some people love it and they want to live there and they want to run it and that's what they want to do. If you want to do that, really any size is fine. You just need to see if the numbers are enough money to make you happy every year. But if you don't want to do that and you're wanting to build a team and you step away and continue to build other properties and buy other properties, you're probably going to need at least 100 sites. So that kind of 100 sites is the cutoff on something that can potentially become institutional because it has to do with how you want to exit also, meaning anybody who's a savvy investor is not just thinking about how they're buying it. They're thinking about what they're going to do in the long run. And if your goal is to exit to one of these large institutions that pay those better cap rates when you sell, it needs to be big enough that they'll buy it. 
and 100 sites isn't even big enough for them. So you would want at least 100 sites with extra area for expansion to someday build up and become that institutional grade property. With long-term rentals, there's certain like states who have better laws and terms for you versus the tenant. Same thing with Airbnb. There's certain cities that crack down a little bit more than others. Are there certain kind of geographical areas that tend to be a little bit more open for this kind of development? Because it's similar to a hotel, we don't think of there being different areas that are unfriendly to hotels. Airbnbs are so controversial because there aren't specific rules for them. And there's specific types of industries like hotels fighting against them. RV parks aren't quite that. It's not more on a regulation type thing that we're looking at. It's more of locations that are more demand, meaning like stuff near national parks are always high in demand because people are wanting to go camping in those locations or tourist towns are always high demand. But the RV parks that are long-term, we're thinking more like mobile home parks and affordable housing. So are you seeing population growth? Are you So I, I use Best Places website to check out the population growth as well as the different types of employers in the area. Because I try to steer people away from things like man camps. Man camps are, um, you see them often in Texas or uh, in the Pacific Northwest when you have like a pipeline coming through or something like that. They're a piece of land that is valued not very high. And then all of a sudden there's this influx of workers coming in for some specific job and they all need somewhere to live. So maybe for three years, you're making a killing off that land because everybody's parking there and needs somewhere to stay. But when, you know, the president changes and oil's not doing what it's doing or that job site dries up, the land is then almost worth nothing because that demand was only related to that one specific thing. So same with when you're buying multifamily properties also. So, you know, you're wanting to look and make sure there's not just one employer in the area because if something goes wrong, you're screwed. So it's more of tourism or looking at types of employment than it is the laws around things like um, rent control or whatever it is that you're referring to. You mentioned zoning before, and I'm curious, let's say I'm someone who just owns a single family residence. I listened to this episode. I'm like, Heather's killing it. Like RV parks sound so cool. Whoa, Heather bought an RV for 30K and made 30K that year from, you know, Airbnb and all these similar sites, this RV share. Are there like laws and regulations that block someone from doing that? Like just basically putting a trailer, let's say in their driveway or like next to their house and <laughs> renting it out on Airbnb? So Yes and no. Okay. It depends on the county you're in. So you need to call city planning and ask about those different kinds of laws and regulations. For example, I live in both South Florida and Tennessee, and my South Florida house would never let me have an RV parked in the driveway. I literally have to rent a storage facility not too far from here. I have a bus that I travel around in with the kids, and it's in a storage facility not too far from my house because I can't have it here. And that's not a neighborhood rule because obviously some people have HOAs that don't allow it. That's not a neighborhood rule. That's a city rule. But my house in Tennessee, no one cares. I could put five in the driveway and no one would care. That wouldn't be a very good experience with five in the driveway. <laughs> but in some areas, you could absolutely do it. But make sure you're checking with city planning and zoning to see what your options are. Because I have students in my RV parking glamping program and some of them live in areas that they put a couple glamping tents on the property that's their primary residence. But again, you got to check with city planning and zoning before you do something like that. And we've talked a lot about like successes and things that have went well. I'm curious, especially with some of these like income stream ideas, you've tried so many, you are doing so many. What are some of the ones that you thought would work, but just turned out did not actually make any money? You know, it's interesting. Some of it's timing too. When I first put the tiny homes in, which was probably seven years ago now, 
maybe it's been eight years. It's been a while. I tried to add kind of a mini bar feature because I had stayed in a hotel that I liked. Like I was telling you about doing all these different things. And I'm like, why would mini bars not do well? Like vending machines do well at these properties. Like mini bar makes so much more sense to me. And they didn't do well. It didn't work out well at all. But as properties changed and things like Airbnbs and people getting used to a different type of experience at RV parks kind of morphed into this different expectation, it failed. We stopped doing it. Now, four or five years later, we've re-implemented that with a different system and it does great. So sometimes your ideas that are failures isn't like a no, this doesn't work. It's just a not right now. And that you may have to implement that later, change the process a little bit and keep trying. That's entrepreneurship. Just keep trying, get knocked down and try again. I'm curious with these types of properties, you know, with a long-term rental, you're like, okay, the big expenses, it's like foundation, boiler, roof. There's all these things that could go wrong or that are like sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars if you get a really bad issue. What are like typical CapEx expenses when you're looking at an RV park? Yeah. So your roads are going to be a big one. Repaving those roads is a huge expense that you're constantly saving that capital expense for because you're eventually going to have to do it. A lot of RV parks, especially the types that we're talking about now have pools. So expenses related to your pool, whether it's the equipment from like, we just replaced the pool pump, which wasn't cheap and some different equipment related to that. Lots of HVAC stuff, because even though each site doesn't have that, most RV parks are required to have bathhouses which aren't as bad as they sound. Most of them are super nice individual rooms with tiled showers and all these things, but you've still got massive HVAC because it's a big building with multiple showers and bathrooms and all those kinds of things. The office also seems to be constantly HVAC something. So some are similar to your multifamily properties you talked about because we still have roofs on all that stuff. Like I was talking about the pool or the tiny homes. One of the things about the tiny homes or the rental campers that we're talking about, or even the glamping tents, they don't have as long of a shelf life as a house might. You're going to be replacing those types of things. The tiny homes typically have a two and a half year return, meaning after you've purchased them, you're making your money back in about two and a half years. So it's okay that they don't have a 30 year shelf life, but you need to be thinking about these are eventually going to need to be replaced. And are there any amenities that you see as somewhat common that people are offering that you've just decided to stick away from because the hassle is just not worth the income stream? So some of the larger parks that are destination parks have massive water parks at them. And they, I've looked into them a couple of times. They cost millions of bucks to add. So you've really got to be able to recoup that money. And you need a park that's large enough to recoup that money. Meaning if you tried to put that water park inside of a 50-site RV park, you're never going to make your money back. And that specific property is a franchise and the other franchise locations oftentimes have these huge mini golf courses or these massive water parks. And that property is only a mile from Dollywood. Dollywood has its own water park. There are a hundred mini golf places in town that are way more fabulous than what I could ever add. And I just can't bring myself to spend the money on that type of amenity when I know there's really great ones that are even walking distance. But a lot of RV parks make really great money with those. So you mentioned shelf life and that got me thinking, A big reason why a lot of investors buy real estate is for depreciation. You know, they get to basically write off some of the income that they're making from their, you know, whether it's passive income or active income of their real estate pro. We're not going to get into that now. What are the depreciation rules like for like an RV versus a tiny home? And I can't imagine it's the same as residential real estate, but I'm curious. It's awesome. So my mastermind just had a cost segregation specialist related to RV parks come in. 
And the percentages of different types of things for cost segregation is way better on an RV park than they are multifamily. We just did a big study on the differences between the two. So all of your depreciation stuff is still awesome. So awesome that I got a stimulus check during COVID because I never end up showing any income. (laughs) (laughs) And thinking through again, I mean, most people's experience are just with either your primary residence or if you're investing in something, you know, a single family, maybe like a duplex or something, but not an RV park. Are there any odd things with insurance that come into play? Insurance is expensive. You're higher risk on some stuff because you are adding, you know, pools and potentially lakes or rivers or types of water in there. And people run over stuff. They ruin all kinds of things. So their insurance is a little bit more expensive. And you do need to find a niche specific insurance broker. That was one of my first mistakes. I didn't know enough about real estate or insurance to know that. And I went with a regular local insurance company and I finally met a couple other RV park owners and was talking to them about different expenses and things like that. And they introduced me to a a niche specific insurance broker and it was a game changer as far as my costs went. But yes, I think any asset class, you've got to know some of those niche specific providers because it's going to be a game changer as far as costs and availability and things that you can offer your guests. And I know when you started out, you got this like crazy loan that probably would not be available today. What does typical financing look like now? So there's a couple options. I've had the best luck with local banks and credit unions. They are significantly easier to deal with than some of the large institutional banks that you're just another number for. And when I say local, I mean local to the property and not a local branch of, say, Chase Bank or Ameribank or something like that, meaning it's actual local regional bank or credit union. I've had significantly better luck with them. Typically, they're asking for 20% down and a normal commercial rate similar to getting a debt service coverage ratio loan. Your other option is in our industry, because 88% of parks are owned by mom and pop, and a lot of them are over generations. Each three or four generations later is still who owns it. They don't typically have debt on their property. So you're able to get some owner financing options that you might not find in some other asset classes. And sometimes they're not going to, they're still usually going to want something down. So sometimes you get a combination, the last property I bought, I had a combination of owner financing with some bank debt. So kind of got to get creative with some of those financing options because that 20% can quickly become a lot of money to put down. For those sites that you're looking at purchasing, like people who already have theirs, they're looking to offload them to you is generally the reason it needs to be offloaded and the reason that you feel like it's a viable option is just because they're not thinking about it like that full business. They're not thinking about all of the income streams and they're just not squeezing all the value out of it. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's mom and pop only see themselves as operators. And so maybe they're really great operators, but not great business people. So pop and mom are super tired because they have been in customer service at the front lines for 50 years. And they've worked 100 hours a week keeping their business going. Instead of working on their business, they've worked in it for 50 years. And they're tired and they're done and they just don't want to do it anymore. I see people burn out really easily if they don't learn how to work on their business instead of in their business. Yeah, that's super important, something that not enough people do. But once you kind of step out and are able to work on your business, it grows so much faster than if you're doing everything yourself. It's amazing how that works. I moved 900 miles away from all of my properties almost four years ago, and I'm significantly more successful living in a different location because I'm able to focus on those things instead of 
Heather, you got to make pizzas today. Someone called in or run over blows <laughs> and grab another air unit because there's no one else to go. Like I can't be that option anymore. It forces you to have better systems and processes. Absolutely. So know at the beginning, we didn't want to you know, name the grandiose metrics and we didn't want to start at the end because we wanted people to hear your full story, like how you got started, you know, sleeping at the RV park for the first six months. <laughs> but now I don't even know if I'm going to call it doors, spaces. How many units do you have in total? <laughs> yeah. So I have a combination of RV parks, mobile home parks, section eight multifamily. <laughs> and I bought my first motel recently and I'm up to about 300 units. And through that process, I've bought some stuff and sold some stuff. So my unit count has been hovering the same for about two, maybe three years because I didn't have anybody to teach me do this stuff. My family wasn't in real estate. I hadn't found great mastermind groups and things like that in the beginning. So I tried a few different things. I tried student housing and freaking hated it. And lots of people make great money at student housing. It just wasn't for me. So as I was trying some of those different asset classes and I wouldn't like them, I would sell that and then purchase something else. I've kind of Throughout COVID also where real estate prices went up, I sold some of the stuff that wasn't my favorite and reinvested in other asset classes that I liked. Some of the other episodes that we've been doing recently kind of talked about like, oh, well, you know, we're in a bear market for the first time. We're seeing inflation go really high for the first time. Are there things about an RV park that have some kind of, not just seasonality, because I get normal seasonality where if it's a place, it's a warm weather place, it, it gets busier, but kind of these bigger economic trends that impact an RV park differently than it might for a normal like single family home real estate investor? I'm 11 years into the asset class and I haven't seen it happen yet. I've had a couple freak out moments where I was thinking something was going to happen. The first time was a couple presidents ago, the government had a shutdown and the national park was closing. And October is my busiest month of the year. And so coming into my busiest month of the year, which is where I save the money to make it through the winter months, the national park shut down, which is really close to me and one of the big tourist attractions. And I was thinking, holy crap, what's going to happen? How are we going to make money this year if the national park closes? And the national park was closed for a couple of weeks of that month, and we still beat the previous year. I was totally shocked. The next time was, I don't know if you remember the Gatlinburg fires when like mm -hmm. on the news, it looked like the apocalypse and the whole place was burning down. And while that was absolutely awful and there were definitely areas that were massively affected, it wasn't what the news made it sound like. And so people were calling and can't, we couldn't keep up with the phone calls of cancellations of people just canceling, canceling, canceling. So again, I'm freaking out thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then again with COVID, kind of same kind of freak out. The government's shutting everything down. People are canceling. They don't know what's going on. So it's more controlled by what the news and the media are starting to tell people. Even recently with the gas prices that we had for a couple months during my busiest months this summer, everybody's got these massive gas prices. So I was watching my KPIs. My manager send me KPIs every day. And so I'm watching them come through thinking, oh my gosh, are we going to be affected by these gas prices? And shockingly, we were not. I think it's because plane ticket prices got so bad at the same time that people are still going to go on vacation. So the plane ticket was not a better option. So driving their car or camper still was a great option for them. It's a different type of effect than you have in a normal kind of single family home, multifamily environment. So you just mentioned managers there. You talked about working on your business rather than working in your business. Could you walk us through a day in the life? What does it look like now that you have you know, 300 units, you have all these managers managing those units? What are you spending most of your time doing? 
it's controlled chaos and there is no day in the life. I have three kids who are five, seven, and 10 and they're homeschooled. So, and I'm a single mom. So they're running around with me. You know, we get a call on a property because I'm buying motels in the area I live in right now. And we're running to look at a deal while we're playing homeschool videos and stopping to make everybody lunch minute. I just did a Zoom call with like some high level people and I'm trying to like, I have one kid hopping up in the background in a Spider-Man <laughs> costume and we're like, it's controlled chaos trying to be a mom and run a couple businesses. But I hired my mom a couple years ago as my COO. She is a massive taskmaster. And that was a game changer for me. She doesn't know much about real estate, but she's so great at accomplishing tasks and checklists and staying on top of everybody that it really helped me be able to move from working in my business to on my business, having someone else responsible for getting things to the finish line. And you don't strike me as somebody who's really like thinking about like the end game, end game. Like you seem like somebody who wants to stay really busy, but is there something on the horizon where you're thinking like, you know, I, there's no, like you said, you've got, you got three kids, you're trying to raise them. Is there a point where you think, you know what, when I get to this level or once I do this, I kind of want to be able to completely remove myself from all this, just sell it and ride off into the sunset. I'm not that. The second <laughs> I get a minute of spare time, I've come up with some other business or some other something. It's like a sickness. I can't turn it off. Even living down here, maybe a year and a half ago, I decided I wanted to start social media so that I could start affecting other women's lives in a positive way. And that takes up a ton of my time now, being able to coach and educate those different types of people. So if I get a spare second, I'm doing something different. So I don't know why I would get rid of the stuff that I have. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously making an awesome impact. Again, I saw you speak on stage. It was amazing. Awesome story. Something we didn't talk about today. I think you're, I don't know when this started, but you started creating your own syndications, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, we finished the legal work not that long ago to be able to syndicate some of these properties. The 30 million that I have in real estate now, I've bought all on my own through the Burr method with just constantly buying distressed properties and refinancing and then buying the next one. And as some of these deals get larger and larger, you know, they're 20, 30, 40 million dollar properties. Those are not properties I'm going to be able to buy on my own. There's no rich dad in the background who's going to fund all that kind of stuff. So one of the side effects of the social media stuff is I get inquiries daily of people asking, how do I invest with you? How do I invest with you? And so those two things just kind of came together at the same time where I'm finding these properties that I'm interested in that are costing more and more money in the social media. I think I'm up to like 250,000 followers across all the platforms. That just causes people to say, hey, how can we invest with you? Since I'm constantly talking about all these different asset classes. So how does someone invest for you? Like when does that <laughs> open up? Like what, what does that look like? Yep. There is a form on all my social media forms that just says invest with Heather. There's a minimum of $50,000 investment for accredited investors. And as each project open up, everybody gets an email to see if they're interested in it. It's pretty interesting. And last thing I want to talk about, because again, you mentioned this when I saw you on stage was the wealthy woman. Can you tell us what that's yeah. all about? It's so exciting. It's my favorite project right now. Staying busy, Heather. <laughs> it is. I know. It's teaching women to be fierce, fabulous, and financially free. And the neat part about The Wealthy Woman is it has two sides to it. Even though it's all the same program, I'm partnered with Ryan Pineda on that for two reasons. First, there's the entrepreneurial side of it. Women who are similar to me who are interested in business and they just eat, sleep, and breathe it. And it becomes really tough to find other women who are interested in those things and to talk about it with. When you heard me speak on stage, you heard me talk about how I was in brokerage for quite a few years and I had my first million dollar commission. 
And there was nobody to celebrate that with. Like you feel embarrassed or ashamed to tell your friends who might make a million bucks in their lifetime, hey, I just made this on one deal. But it's as entrepreneurs, you know yourself that if you don't celebrate those victories and those deals, you burn out. And so trying to build that tribe of women around me that you can truly celebrate victories with, you can have those high level conversations with because you start feeling like you don't fit in your friend group anymore and you kind of missing that. So that's the entrepreneurial side of it. And the other side of it are ladies like Mindy, Ryan's wife, who are at home supporting an entrepreneur. And the different types of things that come with that are, you know, their husbands are busy. They're spending a lot of money that they can sometimes get stressed out about these new business ventures that they have going on, or they're home with kids while their husbands are at a conference. Some of them are having these identity crises and things that women go through as they're supporting that entrepreneur themselves. And so we have awesome stuff for both sides of that in The Wealthy Woman. And it's been awesome. We're a couple months into it. And I think we have almost 100 ladies. So it's been fun. Well, Heather, much like the income streams, it seems like just in life in general, you've got so many different streams of attention that you're having to put in, things you're building. And I appreciate you like taking a little bit of time because I'm sure you have an insane schedule to give us and our listeners. But where should people go if they want to find out about all these different kind of activities that you got going on? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Heather Blankenship X3 or on my website at heatherblankenship.com. Awesome. Well, just want to echo what Justin said. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure our audience got a ton of value. And until the next event we see you at. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share this with a friend. And also, don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way, every Wednesday, you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.